Ballet Bird is a streaming site designed by former Pacific Northwest Ballet principal dancer Julie Tobiason. Ballet Bird offers ballet classes for anyone at any level of training that you can do from the comfort of your home or studio. After many years performing as a professional ballerina and decades of teaching at all levels of ballet, Julie is excited to offer her training for more people like you. Classes are designed for large and small spaces and for all levels. The low monthly membership fee is less than one in-person class and is accessible 24/7 with new classes added every month. Ballet Bird is a great addition to your regular in-studio training as well. Take advantage of the 10-day free trial and use the discount code COD25 to get 25% off through June 30th, 2023 at balletbird.com. Whether you are just starting your ballet journey today or you're a seasoned professional, Ballet Bird is the place for you. Visit balletbird.com or click the link in the show notes. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Conversations on Dance shop is now open. Check out all of our new merch featuring exclusive designs created by graphic designer Ben Wiseman. The concept is inspired by the famous New York City ballet poster showing the five ballet positions of the feet. The design comes in three color combinations and is available in t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, tote bags, and mugs. We just got our shipment of COD gear and we just love it and we can't wait to share it with you. To shop now, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com or click the link in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you are listening to this episode and to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to the episode. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. On today's episode of Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Linda Murray, the curator of the Jerome Robbins Dance Division at the New York Public Library. We speak with Linda about how her passions for dance and archiving merged, the history of the dance division, curating the collection, and how every individual can protect and preserve their own personal archives. Plan a visit to the Dance Division by visiting nypl.org. Linda, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, we're here to talk about the fabulous work you do at one of my favorite places in the whole world, the Drum Robbins Dance Division at the New York Public Library. Um, but before we get into that specifically, we want to just hear a little bit about your own background and how you first became involved and fell in love with dance. I've always loved dance. Um, by the way, just shout out for you both wearing matching outfits of green today. <laughs> it was a, a happy accident. Yeah. We always, <laughs> I was like, oh, for me, for St. Patrick's Day. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that's what I was thinking too. Uh, we got on the Zoom and we were like, uh-oh. <laughs> we're in the same thing. Well, so I, I am from Ireland. I, I come from Dublin. And uh, dance was always part of my life because my grandparents on my dad's side were both uh, Irish dancers. They were champion Irish dancers. My grandfather in particular um, held many titles in the 1930s and 40s. And my dad actually had danced too. Uh, on, had won quite a few titles, but although he gave up at the ripe age of 10, uh, he did not like wearing. <laughs> at that point, uh, boys had to wear a kilt when they did Irish dancing, and he did not. Uh, like wearing a kilt. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, I think my earliest memory of dancing is just being in my grandparents' kitchen and my granddad showing me basic reel and hornpipe steps and just copying him. Uh, although I then trained in ballet. Uh, so I studied ballet as a child and then went into the Royal Academy of Dance program. Um, they had an affiliate in Dublin and then went to the Russian Ballet School uh, and then actually spent a little bit of time in Russia. So ballet was my training, but my family's um, love of dance was Irish dance. And so dance mm. was always part of my life. And actually it was my granddad again that I think was the intersection to archives uh, because when I was about 10 or 11, I remember him taking these like plastic shopping bags and he was getting ready to throw things out. And when I looked inside, they were just filled with medals that he had won. And my heart broke that they were going to be thrown out. And I was like, no, 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 you can't throw those out. And he said, sure, who'd want them? You know, in his mind, it was just sort of like, what, why would anybody want any sort of ephemera from when he danced? And I think that was the first time I had a realization that our art form is so fragile and so transient and that the little things that get left behind the traces, that they are precious and they tell a story and they allow us to recover our history. So I'm not saying like I was like, oh, I will become a curator at 11 years of age. <laughs> a lot of other stuff happened in between. But it it was the first, I think that's the first moment I realized that I cared about the things that get left behind after a dance gets made. Um, mm. And then I, you know, I worked at the Library of Congress before I had trained as a librarian uh, as their dance specialist and um, and fell in love again with the idea of archives. So after my PhD in dance, I went back and did my master's in library science with an archival track. So. That's sort of my way in. And I think my first, uh, I've told the story before, but my very first trip to America was actually to the dance division. Um, so when I was 19, I was uh, writing up some paper about different versions of Rite of Spring that existed. And my lovely public librarian in Dublin was trying to help me source things. And she was like, it's all just in this place in New York. You've got to go there. Um, and the Art Council of Ireland used to offer Irish citizens a free plane ticket for cultural purposes. Uh, so you just write in and say what you wanted to do and they'd send you an airlink of plane ticket to go. So I wrote in and said, I want to go to the New York Public Library, I want to look at all of the stand stuff. They sent me my plane ticket. I stayed in some dodgy hostel down in the East Village. <laughs> <laughs> and just the, the very first time I came into uh, into the library and into the dance division, I was like, well, like that that thing that I had felt when I was a child of like, who cares about this stuff? I realized, well, this is the place where they care about this stuff. So it just felt like I was on sacred ground from the very beginning. So oh. it was it was a job that I never would have dreamed I could have had, and um, feel incredibly humbled to have it, but love the job. Yeah. Wow. I wonder, were you ever um, considering uh, pursuing a professional career in dance? You clearly loved it. You trained very hard. When did that kind of switch over happen where you were going to kind of take it in a different direction? I think because I was training in ballet and Ireland did, um, didn't have a national company and importantly, didn't have a national school. I knew that that pathway was always not really realistic for me. I did. I did dance with pickup companies like I had a brief career, uh, but I, I knew I was never going to be Isabella Boylston or something like that. So I and I was fortunate that I liked academia. I enjoyed academia. So I kind of married those two loves together. And um, yeah, it, it's been very rewarding. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the dance division? What year was it founded and what were some sure. of those early years like? Yeah, so the we date the dance division back to 1944, and we date it to that uh, year because that's the year the library hired a woman called Genevieve Oswald, Gigi Oswald, and uh, Gigi was a young music librarian in her 20s working in the music division. And because she was a woman, uh, quite frankly, when dance material would come in as part of music collections, they just pass it off to her. 
And even though she herself was not a dancer, she had taken one semester of dance in college, but she was uh, a vocal student. She was going to Juilliard for voice and her husband was also a musician. But the minute she started to interact with the dance material, she realized this is different and it doesn't conform to the cataloging rules that we apply to music and other materials. And it, it's its own thing and it needs to be described differently and it needs its own space and its own people taking care of it. Mm. So she started advocating for a dance division to exist. Um, as you can imagine, the library probably loved the idea of like throwing extra dollars at a whole new department. <laughs> right. That's what that was like my initial thought is like, how did the funding come about for this? Yeah. Um, so she she knew it was going to be an uphill struggle. There's a, a legendary interaction she had with Lincoln Kirstein. So she's in her 20s. She's trying to convince the New York. And remember, like 1940s, she has a very few women working at that point. Um so she's trying to figure out how she's going to convince the library she should have her own department. And she acknowledges she will need buy-in from the community. And she's thinking about who's in the dance field that's powerful. And one of the most important cultural figures at that moment is Lincoln Kirstein. So she gets herself an interview with Lincoln Kirstein when she's in her 20s. Um, she catches him on a bad day. The uh, so Lincoln was notoriously manic depressive and you could get a good Lincoln or you could get a bad Lincoln. Um, she called him on a bad day. He had independently given his dance material to MoMA at that moment. Um, he was on the board of MoMA. He was hoping MoMA would become a place where a dance department would thrive. So he saw her as competition, got very, very angry at her, threw her out of his office, and in her words, uh, told her to go home and have babies and that she was a silly little woman. So... <laughs> So <laughs> that didn't work out so well. I will say five years later, they meet again at the Capizio Awards and Gigi's getting an award for service to the field. And that's where their great friendship begins because they sit her beside Lincoln Kirstein and Gigi said they said nothing to each other until dessert came. And then he leaned over and he said, I see you started that dance department anyway. And she said, and I got up and I said, yes. And I had the children too, Mr. Kirstein. Yes. <laughs> and he thought that was hilarious. And so then they uh -huh. became great friends. And yeah, she became a great benefactor to the dance division. But how she did get the dance division started, um, when Kirstein didn't work out, she remembered that the modern dance choreographer, Doris Humphrey, had written an essay back in 1936 called The Dance Score. So Doris was, for those who don't know, Doris Humphrey would have been a peer of Martha Graham. Uh, they both trained with St. Dennis and Ted Sean. And in the 1930s, they would have been the two most powerful women in modern dance. Uh, Jose Lamon was dancing for, for Doris Humphrey at that time. So she was, she was a force in the community. Mm -hmm. And both she and Martha were living in poverty. And unlike ballet companies where there was an understood vocabulary and technique, for Martha and Doris, in order for them to put a show up, they had to pull women together and men, but mainly women. They had to train them in their technique. Then they had to set repertory on them. Then they would perform. And then they didn't have any money to keep those women on a on a salary from till the next gig came along. And so many of those dancers were disperse and they'd have to start all over again. So Doris mm -hmm. was looking at this and she's saying, Modern dance isn't going to last more than a generation at this rate. Like there's there's no sustainable way for us to see a future for our, our art form. So she starts to think about what it would take to carry modern dance forward. So she sits down and she writes this essay called The Dance Score, and she starts advocating for a dance archive. She talks about the need to notate dance, to film dance, a place to keep dance safe. And Gigi remembers that that essay got written she goes to Doris Humphrey, she tells her what she wants to do, and Doris says, I will help you. So the first five collections into the dance division end up being modern dance collections. Doris Humphrey and her partner, Charles Weidman, Ruth St. Dennis, Ted Sean, and then uh, Isabel Duncan. So that, that became our first, the first five. So Doris is always very special to the dance division. And we actually have the original essay in the archive, if you ever want to come and wow. see it. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, because she, she, sure. she wrote to people all over the world asking for examples of dance notation, and she gathered it all in this essay. And there is also even a Polar Pueblo dance that she notated herself. And there is hand drawings she did of Mary Zygmunt's witch dance. So it's, it's quite a cool artifact. 
Wow. So interesting. Yeah. So anyway, that's where the dance division started. Um, and then Gigi was on a mission. Uh, so in the 1960s, we began our original documentation program. So the first 20 years, I'd say, were really about trying to build a skeleton of materials. And then Jerome Robbins and Gigi were talking to each other about how without film of dance, really a dance archive is, is not really an archive of dance at all. So he gives her seed funny funding for the dance division to start going out into the field and filming dance, filming live performance. And that's something we do to this day. So we have camera crews out around country every night filming performance. Mm -hmm. So people give us video of their performances, but we also independent of that go out and film performance too. Um, so, and then in the, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I just wanted to kind of jump into this story about how Jerry got involved. And I wonder, so this was his own personal money that he yeah. was giving towards this. And then did he start, like, what was then the track to get New York City Ballet involved? Could he just give his videos of what he had? Like, how was that kind of working? So, uh, so Jerry, Jerry's love of the library went back to his childhood because he, um, it was a place of assimilation for him. He was the child of Russian Jews, uh, first generation. And so he always said that the library was a place where he became an American. And then when the dance division began, uh, for Jerry, the dance division was a place where he could, he felt a great insecurity in his lack of knowledge and training comparative to the Russian immigrant dancers he was working alongside. And the dance division became a place where he could make up the gap so mm -hmm. he was invested in the dance division from the 1940s onward um in the 1960s jerry started filming all of his own work um and his foundation at that time was named for his mother lena robbins um so he was filming all of his work and we owe him a great debt because george valentine was not interested in filming his work and jerry basically just broke him down and was like no we have to uh -huh. film your work um so right. jerry got George to agree to have cameras in the rehearsal room. And that's how we have footage of George Valentin rehearsing Suzanne Farrell and Jack Duplaz and things like that, which is absolutely incredible. Um, right. So Jerry was one of the first choreographers to really see the value in not just filming the final work, but also filming the rehearsal process, which is so valuable when you're trying to reset repertory because the choreographic intent is really contained in the rehearsal rather than in the performance. Any choreographer will tell you the minute you let the dancers go on stage, like it's not yours anymore, they're <laughs> doing their thing. <laughs> right. But in the rehearsal, like there's one of my favorite things is Jerry rehearsing Misha, uh, so uh, for suite of dances, Mikhail Bereshkov from Robbins in the studio together. And Jerry is talking to Misha about dancing off the beat with the Bach music. And it's this moment of understanding, oh, that's why it looks modern. Like, even though it's Baroque music, that's how right. it feels like jazz. That's how it feels modern is that sort of syncopated response to the music with the choreography and just seeing him break that down and watching the two of them kind of go through it together, it's really magical. Um, so yeah. I don't know if I'm answering your question, Rebecca. No, you are. No, it's okay. great. I'm like jotting <laughs> down other questions so I don't forget them. <laughs> so and, I will, <laughs> and I will also say the other thing Jerry did for the dance division, I mean, Jerry did many things for the dance division, but in relation to film, he gave us money to document, but then he also wrote to people. He wrote to all the people he knew and asked them to start sending their film to the dance division. Um, so he's so really he an advocate his, too. Yeah, he used his personal capital to start building up a collection of dance film for us, which was wow. incredibly useful. I mean, when you got a letter from Jerome Robbins, you paid attention to it versus some like dance librarian in the nether regions of the New York Public Library. Right. So yeah, that was really helpful too. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm wondering, um, you know, at that point, it sounds like, you know, in the earlier days, maybe you're having to chase people down a little bit more. It's it's not as, as common of a practice to preserve dance in this way. But now, uh, I imagine one has to be, I don't want to say pickier, but, you know, maybe a little more discerning. What's the curative process like? How do we, how do we decide what is worth saving or what to pursue when we're preserving. I just like to hear a little bit more about that. It's really hard. 
Um, because again, the dance division occupies quite a unique space. The Library of Congress does collect dance material as well. Um, and uh, Harvard has some dance material out in California, USC and UCLA. And there's also uh, some dance material in Ohio. Those are all much smaller dance archives than us. Uh, so when somebody goes to our, the music division at the New York Public Library, if the music division says no, that composer or musician has lots of other big choices available to them as an alternative. But in the dance division, we know that when we say no to something, we're really limiting options for someone else. Uh, so we try really hard to take in as much as we can. Uh, and the division has always worked that way. And in terms of kind of a curatorial eye, you're trying to ensure that there is always um, representation broadly across the field in, in every sense, uh, in terms of you know, communities being uh, represented within the archive, the different styles of dance that are being represented within the archive, um, balances between large organizations, small organizations, really famous choreographers, lesser known but incredibly influential choreographers who like right. maybe inspired a whole generation of people who went on to have bigger fame than them. Mm -hmm. So you're it's always sort of a you're you're always looking at what you have. I, I always when I'm, in, when I'm in the when I'm in the stacks, I look at the boxes and I think of the boxes talking to each other. So when I'm thinking about a new, you know, because like if Jerry's sitting on the shelf beside Mirth, I'm thinking like, what are they talking about? Um, so. <laughs> I love that. And at the moment right now, Bilty Jones is sitting right beside Mirth, who's sitting right beside Jerry, who's sitting right beside Agnes Deville. I'm like, that's a, that's a dinner party I go to. Um, yeah, but, <laughs> but uh, when you when you go to take in something new, you have to ask yourself, well, what will its relationship be to everything else that we already have? So, are you filling a gap? Is it are you are you bringing this in because this is a an underrepresented uh, collecting area within the archive? Are you bringing this in because this is an area where you really sort of already have most of it and you want to make sure that it's a very complete part of the collection? Or is this person or this company that we're thinking about bringing in, is this going to be in dialogue with something else where it will just like open up the existing archive in a whole new way? Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, because um, I just mentioned Agnes DeMille, now we have Martha Graham. Agnes DeMille and Martha Graham uh, corresponded quite frequently. So for years, the dance division had the letters that Martha had sent Agnes. And now in Martha's collection, we have the letters that Agnes sent to Martha. So you have both sides of the correspondence. So, that's mm -hmm. really so the boxes are talking to each other for real. They're always <laughs> talking to each other. <laughs> Dimensions Dance Theatre of Miami is seeking dancers for their 2023-24 season. Join them for open auditions on April 23rd in Miami. All auditioning dancers must have professional experience as well as strong classical and contemporary technique. Male presenting dancers will be asked to demonstrate established partnering skills. Female presenting dancers will be asked to demonstrate proficient point work. Their 2023-24 season will include performances in Miami, Broward, Vero Beach, and additional touring. For more information, please visit dimensionsdancemia.com slash auditions or click the link in the show notes. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you're mentioning, and I do want to get into kind of like how you're curating current um, choreography and and film, but to kind of keep with this more historical context, you're talking about maybe lesser known choreographers. Is there someone or someone's work that has has now come into the library that maybe people wouldn't necessarily see as influential, but you do find through your research that there is this dialogue and you find that this person really did kind of have these touch points to all these important parts in history? Well, there's lots of people like that. Yeah. It's going to be hard to pick just one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <More than laughs> I feel, I feel like I feel, I feel, it's like a Sophie's choice. There, there, there are there are lot there are lots of collections like that. I would say um, where I see it come up a lot is uh, well, Mary Hinkson is a good one uh, because I think Mary, if people know Mary Hinkson's name, they would know her as. Um, the first black dancer, principal dancer for Martha Graham's company. And that is obviously an incredibly important part of her legacy. But Mary also had a really important role as a teacher, uh, dance theater of Harlem, for Juilliard, for Ailey. And so she ends up influencing a whole next generation of people that is maybe like those links are not necessarily understood or known. Um, and so having her archive sort of opens you up to that other facet of her the, the totality of her career um which is interesting but there, there's lots of examples like that I think the other thing that comes out of having artists archives is you realize how multifaceted they are like we're taking them in because of the reputation they have within the dance field but in taking in their archive you often discover that they are incredible visual artists or photographers or they wrote poetry and so there, there's all of that stuff that then finds its way into the archive too. And it just changes the way you relate to the work. Um, and it creates a really intimate dialogue between you and that, that choreographer in a way that you wouldn't have had if you just saw their work on stage. So for someone like that, how are you getting their archives? Like, okay, for Jerry, we know like there's there's a wealth of of information. He has a foundation, like there's people working to put that together, but how do you, for these lesser known people, how are you finding, is it just like in some grandchild's attic or how does that work? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you, you go, you go into people's homes. Um, at like a, a large part of the work is going into people's homes. Mm. Um, sometimes it's after they've died. Sometimes it's when they're still alive. So it's, it's a variety of situations in New York. It's often because people are moving <laughs> like the real estate, <laughs> the real estate, like downsizing is real in New York. Um, That's so you, you, you go in and I, I think dancers, dancers are interesting because dancers are perfectionists. So when you go in and you start to talk about somebody's archive with them, dancers inevitably just pull out the photos where they, look their absolute best where they're like hitting that moment perfectly they have their new york times reviews and they're like this is my archive and that's right. that's great but that's not actually going to help anybody understand who they are mm-hmm. um and so what you have to chat about is the fact that the archive that you place is going to speak on your behalf when you're not around to speak on your behalf anymore. Archives have lifespans of hundreds and hundreds of years where a human being is lucky to get, you know, 80 or 90. So you have to look at your archive as the way you communicate with future generations and, and then start putting together the material that you, you want people to, to see and the message you want to share. So when, when people start thinking about that, they start thinking about the teachers who influenced them. They start thinking about, you know, people that they danced alongside who maybe like only danced for one year, but they were really important to them as a partner. And maybe they would have quit if it wasn't for that person. So they, they start pulling in personal photos and correspondence and different kinds of memorabilia find their way in. Um, and also for choreographers in particular, you 
you really want to start getting thinking about where did you keep, like, did you have notebooks? Were you writing down random quotes when you were on the subway on your way to rehearsal? And you you basically go around and you rifle through all their stuff. You start opening drawers. You're like, <laughs> what's in that box over there? Because um, they have it all laid out for you on a table. They're like, yeah, yeah, this is it. And then you start scanning the room and you're like, what, what's that? What's that? And yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. Find the archive. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we're in a big transitional moment with archives right now. So, I, I mean, what I'm describing is still a physical archive. Um, and so for the generation of artists who are at the end of their careers, they are still um, holding archives that would be predominantly physical. But obviously, anybody who's 50 or younger, most of their archival material is digital. So that's a completely different way of thinking about collecting and it's a huge shift in the way you curate and organize an archive. So those conversations are very, very different. Um, mm. And it also requires engagement with artists at a much earlier age than we typically would, because digital storage of digital material is something you have to be much more proactive with than you would be physical material. It used to be that you could just say, oh, I'm going to keep this. You throw it in a box. And the box would just get moved around wherever you went in your life. And then years later, you just hand the box over. Um, But with digital files, people are saving it on all kinds of devices. People are changing out their devices all the time. People forget their passwords. So like they had like a ton of photos saved on the cloud, except they don't remember the password to get into that account anymore. So they're just like, oh, well, those are gone. Um, No, that's (laughs) true. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing I always give people is like, think about the email account you had 10 years ago. Do you know how to go back into that email account? And then that would be your correspondence. If you think about it in like kind of a physical term, that's that's where all your back and forth with collaborators is, all the ideas are being shared, all of the information about paths coming together and locations and tours, Mm. all in email. We can can archive email um, and we do archive email. But people don't yet think about their email account as something that might find its way into into a repository at a future point in time. The same is true for right. photos and the videos you're taking on your phone. I don't think people think of those items as archival objects. But they are. That, that's our video for the future. That, those are our photographs for the future. So, yeah, chatting to artists about how to care for those materials. Yeah, I was really thinking about that before we had this conversation. Or maybe it was after that we first spoke, uh, like a month or so ago. And it is, it's kind of scary, I think. I mean, even text messages could be, yeah. you know, I mean, if you're having this back and forth, but to us, yeah, it, it doesn't have, you know, there's no, um, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. So it, you don't think of it in the same way that you think of, uh, you know, literal letter correspondence. Well, like, Michael, yeah. think about how you talk with Justin Peck, like you're a repetitor for him. You're, you know, at a ballet company and you have a question, you'd probably just text him. Right. And then like that answer could be something worth preserving, but then it gets lost in all of the texts, you know, something like that. Right. Yeah. And if you think about the way uh, dancers and choreographers are using social media to promote their careers and to communicate with each other and also with their fans, like, Social media is something that libraries and archives are really trying to wrap their heads around in terms of how we will archive that material. And it's complicated because there are these for-profit corporations at the back of that social media. Uh, so it's not the same as an artist just independently holding something in their hand. There's there's another layer to it that has to be pulled through. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Can we talk for a second about um, let's go back in time, back to the older ways, the actual, you know, correspondence or well, for one, I'm actually kind of curious. You've, we've already mentioned letters. Mm-hmm. What are some of the more um, curious objects that you have in the collection? I'm sure that like maintaining oh. someone's history, I'm sure there must be a really wide range of things that we've got in there. The, the dance division probably has one of the most eclectic collections uh, because to go back to Gigi, uh, our first curator, and I should say I'm curator number five in a nearly 80 year history. So Gigi ran the division wow. for 43 years. So she wow. all hail 
Gigi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we all live in fear of her. She also lived to be nearly 98 years old. So I was fortunate enough that I did get to know her before she uh, oh, wonderful. left us in 2019. Yeah. But, oh, wow. uh, so she, the stories I've told of her, I got first hand from her. Um, <laughs> she was, she was pretty first. Um, but sorry. So you were saying like the, the kind of the, the rarer object. So Gigi always used to say with dance that you had to collect around the central absence. So, which is a very helpful way for me to think about when I think about how to collect dance. And what she meant by that is like, with everything else that you would collect, like if you think about music, there's a score at the center, which is the anchoring object. And so the other materials you collect are always going to relate to that score. And with theater, you have a script. But when you get to dance, even when you have dance film, as we've spoken about, the choreographic intent isn't really as clear as it should be. And also there's a lot riding on uh, the camera angles and whether they went in close or whether they panned out at the right moment. So there, there's just a lot of variables with film dance that still doesn't quite get you where you need to be. And so lots of other things have to be collected in order for people to be able to piece it all back together again. So we've always collected very broadly. So we have costume pieces, we have shoes, we have sculptures, we have artwork, we have designs, manuscript material, film, audio, runs the gamut. Um, there's lots of objects I really like. Um, one of the funniest ones is like we have Isadora Duncan's Pond's cold cream <laughs> and her curling <laughs> iron for her hair. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite objects is really quite poignant. It's an I want to be I'm going to be honest. It's an ugly doll. It's a really ugly doll, but it it makes me cry every time I see it. So, um, Olga Spitsitieva was a famous uh, Russian ballet dancer. Um, she was famed for her interpretation of Chazelle, and she infamously blacked out during the mad scene of Chazelle during a performance. Um, she was uh, institutionalized and at one point was presumed dead. Nobody knew where she was. And then she was found in a psychiatric facility. Um, so she spent many years of her life institutionalized. She was a partner of Vaslov uh, Nizhinsky when they were teens together in Russia. Um, they danced Chazelle together. And as most people would know, Nizhinsky was also, also institutionalized. He was possibly diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So... These two incredible dancers are living their adult lives on different continents in institutions and psychiatric facilities, completely forgotten by the world. And Alda made a doll of Nijinsky as Albrecht in Giselle. And we have that doll. And even though it's not a pretty doll, just there's something about the psychic kind of aura around that doll and what it means about both of them and memory and their their relationship to each other and the shared fate that both of them have that the doll evokes all of that for me and so every time i see it it just elicits all of these very profound feelings and we have many objects like that that have these very special histories and very intimate qualities to them um, but it's not something people would ever expect us to have wow. we do um, right. You mentioned yeah. costumes and that I don't know why that was something I hadn't thought about. I'm thinking just like film and correspondence like we're talking yeah. about. So, and then do costume designers then because I'm thinking, of course, dancers and choreographers come and use the library for all the reasons we're talking about. Do costume designers come in and use? Oh, what yeah, you have absolutely. As well? Yeah, absolutely. And often um, if people are trying to recreate the original lighting design or costume mm. design or set design for something, they'll come in because we will have like, we'll have the original costume design with all the original fabrics watches attached to it. So you can actually come in and do like a full match. Um, the, the lighting designers love to come in and look at the plot. And then we'll have maquettes for, uh, and also uh, just drawings for a lot of the set designs. It's also fun to see the evolution that designs go through or also uh, perhaps designs that were pitched but never came to be. So the um, the Tudor Romeo and Juliet that ballet theater did for many years, Eugene Berman was the designer who got the gig. And we have all of his designs for Romeo and Juliet. 
But what I didn't know until I started at the dance division was Salvador Dali had pitched to do it. And we have his set design for Romeo and Juliet, which never got done, which is incredibly flamboyant. And I personally would have loved to have seen it. Um, but yeah, so you've got like Salvador Dali's like, or it could be like this. And it, it, that was never done, but, but we mm-hmm. have it there and you can see it. Um, and also like at one point in time, Balanchine was working on a ballet of Uncle Tom's Cabin that never came to be. But there is a libretto in the division uh, by W.H. Auden, and there are set and costume designs by the artist Ben Sean. So again, you hmm. see you see this like creative process emerging. Um, for the record, it's a really good idea Balanchine to Uncle Tom's Cabin. But you know, there was at one point in time there was a moment where that was a real conversation, and there was like there were meetings being had, and people were investing right. time and effort in it. And so that's also yeah. Yeah, the archive is both what was, but also what could have been. Right. I, I, as soon as you said you were talking about um, ballet designs that didn't happen, I remember there was like, I think it was at the Dali Museum in Spain. And I remember seeing some ballet that he had designed and it was, um, but it did not come to fruition. But he had the instruments suspended in the air. Like yeah. it's, somehow there was supposed to be a piano, you know, just a <laughs> piano. It was, it was a ball setting and there was just going to be a grand piano suspended. I mean, it sounds pretty amazing. I think it could have been scrapped because practically not going to work <laughs> out, but oh, I do Hazard love the, pay. the, 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 the Hazard Bay. If you're dancing on a piano. A just perilously like underneath a piano, just <laughs> looming over their head while they're pirouetting, just like looking right. up. Like, oh God. Uh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> No, but it's that's I love that 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 material is at the library as well for us. Um, let's talk a little bit about the the un, huge undertaking that must be digitizing the things that um, you know that are in the library's collections, like all of the film. Um, and this kind of ramped up during COVID, I'm guessing, right when we had you wouldn't have had people atten- like in attendance at the library, so we could focus on more specific projects. Well, the problem with the pandemic was it also meant that our vendors were closed and Mm. yeah. So, uh, but what I will say is the dance division is always in the middle of some large digitization project (laughs) or or rather preservation project. Um, Because I think I was, I think I was telling you actually, Michael. So we have film in the dance division that was donated to us early on at a point in time where the best practice of preservation would have been to make another film print. So you received a film reel and the first thing you did was you made a duplicate film reel so that you had a backup. And then magnetic media came along. So you had, you know, everything from pneumatics and digibeta and VHS and all of all of that, you know, generation of uh, moving image media. And so all the original film that originally got put onto a film print, we would have then moved it over to some kind of magnetic media. We did that, I think, twice in the history of the division. And then optical media came along and we moved everything onto DVD. And then we realized, because everybody thought DVD was the solution, then we discovered DVDs really only have a shelf life of about five years in archival terms before they start to lose information. They start to experience this thing called bit rot, where the, uh, the sequence of zeros and ones, which makes up the content of the DVD, some of the numbers start to drop, which is why your DVD skips on you. Um, And so then we started to migrate over to digital files. But each time we go back to do that work, the collection has grown exponentially. So it's not just that like you're digitizing the new stuff you came in. You're also always having to go back and redo the existing collection. And every time you go to do that work, the existing collection has become much, much larger. So there's the job just keeps it because it just becomes a bigger mountain to climb each time. So at the moment, what we are working on, uh, my predecessor, Jan Schmidt, uh, predominantly oversaw the digitization of all the magnetic media that we had. Um, so she did most of that work um, and I just oversaw the end of that project. And so I owe a great debt to Jan Schmidt. And then what I decided to start to tackle was the film format, which hadn't been done for quite some time. So since 2018, we have been revisiting all of our old film that has been moved to, I don't know how many different formats over the years. And we are creating uh, preservation level files and then also viewer copy files of all of that film. And then we still have collections coming in with a large amounts of film in them. And so we're incorporating that into the process as well. 
What are some of the technical challenges of this? Like I'm thinking about, you know, like a way to read like a floppy disk or something like who has that anymore, right? How do you, and if it's broken, how do you service it? Like what are those challenges in terms of having these um, things that read the antiquated technology and then how do you transfer it to something that is more current? Yeah, so we get a lot of floppy disks. Um, <laughs> people are only too happy to just like throw their floppy. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the that's the thing with the floppy disk. Is people are like, I don't know. Like, right. it, it could be it could be really right. useful information, or like it might be a recipe for soup. I don't know. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> do what you want to do with that. Um, so, uh, for things like floppy disks, we have special software that can read them. Um, for physical media, we we still keep all of the old obsolete hardware that that media would have played on. Mm-hmm. So we when we we harvest old video players for parts so that we can keep the machinery operating, and then that obviously then connects to computers and software where the software can then extract from playing, um, and we're able to create a file. Where I mean. The, the preservation team at the library is absolutely extraordinary. They're even able to pull uh, content off wax cylinders. Like they have a bespoke machine where you can play like an old wax cylinder and they're able to run that through a computer program and give you a digital file with a person oh, singing wow. in 1900. Which is really wow. Scary. Yeah. That's yeah. So cool. Wow. So that's, that. I, I mean... There, there are conservators and digital preservationists. There's a whole team at the New York Public Library that spends their day on that work. Um, and so as one of the divisions of the library, the dance division interacts with those teams and they help us care for our materials. Uh, so it's always a partnership and we're very grateful. I'm wondering too, like while you're talking about this, I'm thinking about some of the um, historical books that have come out recently about ballet. We're talking about Nijinska, um, mm-hmm. Jennifer Homans with um, her book, oh, Mr. B. How are um, those sorts of people coming in and using your resources and then, you know, putting it into this different format that's coming from you guys still and then going out to the public? Well, I mean, that is the traditional way of a library being used um, mm. by, you know, by serious researchers is they come and they work with primary materials so that they're getting the information firsthand from the archive and then they are providing it in a succinct format that the rest of us can all read. So they're doing the work for us and then they're distilling all of the information down. Yeah. Um, both are extraordinary books. I, I I have a particular love of Nijinska. She was my area of study. So I'm particularly indebted to to Link Garofola for her book on Nijinska because I feel that she was an extraordinary figure that we all owe so much to in the world of ballet and very few people in ballet know her name or know the death that they owe her um, whereas I think we all know who Balanchine is and Balanchine even owed her a death um, mm-hmm. and she's also I, for me while we still continue to talk about like where are the female choreographers in ballet and you know where is the lgbtq focus in ballet like where where is that gender fluidity in ballet Nijinska was giving us that over 100 years ago and because we didn't take care of her repertory because we let it fall out of being being performed with any great regularity we lost the ability to build on her work and so we didn't the next generation didn't get to benefit. Um, we never got to build on all of the foundations she laid down. So when you look at her work, it's still the most radical thing you've really seen about the ideas of gender and ballet. You know, it, her her Lainos to me just feels like it could have been made yesterday and it's now 100 years old. Mm. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. The, the library, I mean, it's, you have this incredible collection, but you also have ways of uh, interacting with the public that are, you know, um, we ha- you have exhibitions and we have lectures. And can, can you tell us about some of the ways um, sure. outside of the um, collection that the library is giving to its community? Yeah. So uh, the Library for the Performing Arts has over 200 free programs a year. So you never have to pay for anything at the library. That's a really important thing to say. Um, and also, like I think a lot of people are scared to come in and research at the library. 
that is also open to absolutely anybody. You do not need to be like a professional scholar in quotes, whatever that actually means. Um, I know people sometimes get intimidated on the third floor because you have to check your coat in your bag, but really that's it. But the only <laughs> the only scary part yeah. is check your coat in your bag and then it's all fine. Um, all, all, you need, all you need to research at the library is a library card, which is free. And the only thing you need to get a library card is just, you just need to tell them where you live. That's it. And we protect where you live. Libraries are very much about privacy. Um, but we have tons of public programming uh, that's available for free, usually on Monday and Thursday nights at 6 p.m., although sometimes that schedule varies a little bit. And it runs the gamut. Um, and we also have uh, exhibitions that are constantly running. We have three exhibition spaces. So at the moment, there is um, an exhibition that's actually being run by my colleagues in the theater division, but it overlaps into dance significantly. It's an exhibition on the costume designer, Willa Kim, who did a lot of work for dance. Um, and her costumes were very fun and frothy. So if anybody loves costumes, that exhibition is up and running at the moment. And then uh, in early June, the dance division is opening its largest exhibition for since 2018. Um, it's called Border Crossings, uh, Exile in American Modern Dance. So it's being curated by... Um, Two, two professors, doctors Nanach Fenahan and Bruce Robertson from uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. And what they're doing is looking at the early history of modern dance in America. And I think those of us who studied um, dance history have always been told that American modern dance really goes in a straight line of predominantly white women, which would be Loie Fuller to Isadora Duncan and from Isadora Duncan to St. Dennis and Tenshawn. And then from Ruth Bintanis and Ted Shawn to Martha Graham and Doris Humphrey. And then beyond that, you go into Paul Taylor and Rose Cunningham and Sophie Lamone. So they're looking at that first half of the 20th century and they're, they're querying where the BIPOC voices are, where the immigrant voices are. And so they are centering uh, Black, Latinx, Asian American voices. And they're, it's not that we're denying the importance of Graham, Humphrey, but they're being moved to the margins and we're putting other people in the center and just it's it's just shifting the narrative of what we think modern dance is and the archive is a wonderful resource for that because obviously all of those histories are contained within the dance division so it allows us to just tell a different version of the history that we need to know mm -hmm. but that'll be up from june until december and again open to the public six days a week and everybody's welcome to come before we let you go, I did want to um, just talk about something in general, because when we did speak with you, um, like Michael was saying about a month ago, we were talking about, you were like asking us, like, how are you preserving conversations on dance? And I was like, on my computer. And <laughs> so now you have me thinking about that. And I'm just wondering for everyone in the audience could probably benefit from a librarian telling us how we should be preserving things that are important to us in a digital format. So <laughs> give us a little sure. bit of <laughs> a primer on that. Um, so librarians live by a little, uh, it's locks, lots of copies, keep stuff safe. So when you have... <laughs> So when you have uh, a file that you want to protect, um, the ideal would be the two in one. So that means um, if you have uh, the file on a hard drive, maybe you then want to have two types of cloud storage for the same file or the inverse. Maybe you have it on two separate hard drives and you have it in one type of cloud storage. If you have it on two hard drives, the other thing we would suggest is if possible, separate those hard drives geographically because if something happened in your apartment like if there's god forbid a flood or some sort of electrical malfunction or somebody robs you then there go both of your hard drives whereas even if it's just across town any sort of separate geographical distance or separation you can put between the physical hard drives is great so two and one is our that would be our recommended but even if you can just do one hard drive one cloud storage-based system, then at least you know you have a backup. You have a backup for whatever one fails. Uh, but the key is just never, 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 never just have one copy somewhere. Um, if you, The other thing I would say is, because I think a lot of people struggle with this, they're like, I know I have it somewhere. <laughs> I, totally. I, know I, have, yes. I know I have that photo somewhere. Um, if you can set up 
some sort of foldering system that works for you. And if you can stick to your, what we call a naming convention. So just decide for yourself that you're going to be methodical about the way you label your folders. So maybe you're somebody who likes to work numerically. Um, so maybe you're a dates person or you might be a text person. So maybe it's like titles of shows or names of people, but don't switch it up because then you start to lose where everything is. Um, so when you make folders, just decide on a system and then stick to the system. Those are right. just simple little things, but they just make such a difference. And do folder your emails. Like try to folder your emails and organize your emails as you go, because what will inevitably happen if you are an artist and you are having a conversation in the future with an archive is they will say, are there parts of your email account that you want us to redact? Are there parts of your email account you don't want to have made available to the public? And if everything's just sitting in your inbox, there's no way. You're not going to be able to work through that. You'll just be like, oh, whatever. Right. (laughs) And the Lord knows what email will find its way into into some future piece of research. So if you, if the only thing you do is take the emails that are private and put those in a separate folder, in the future, then it's very easy to identify for an archivist, like these are not to be included in my in my public archives, but everything else, that's fine. Um, so that's a, a simple thing you can do. Gosh, it's so funny because just recently I've been thinking, I think honestly, since we talked, I'm like, it's just we get more photos of every, there's just so much data. Like we didn't know that it would start piling up on us in this way. I mean, I didn't. You know, it's like you take a picture of like something happening, like something's broken in your apartment and you take a picture of it. And then seven years later, it's like coming up on your iPhone. Like, remember this? And you're like, why do I have this? There's just so much. (laughs) I have no memory of this. Right. And I don't need that, you know, and it's just like we don't always think of like, wow, this is going to be stuff we have to sift through in the future. And so thinking of it now and putting those things aside and preserving them is well, I know how I'm spending my weekend. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing, I mean, again, that this all comes down to time, but it, it, it goes back to that thing of if you do it in the moment, it's easy. And if you leave it till a later date, it becomes an impossible task. And this, is, this was true of physical material and it's extra true of digital material. When you get a photo, if you're able to tag the photo immediately with the names of the people in the photo, what it is that they're doing and the date, 20 years from now, you will be really glad you did that because you will be like, oh, what what was their name? They were so nice. And Um, what was that thing? I don't remember where they were (laughs) dancing. Like The number of photographs that we receive where people just can't identify who's in the photographs. They can't remember what the piece is. They don't remember where they were. And it's their own archive. And they're like, right. yeah, he was in my company for seven years. He was great. <laughs> like, what, what's his name? <laughs> oh, <remember>. so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the more you can kind of do as, as you receive material, then it doesn't feel overwhelming. But I do understand that they got more busy. They got busy in life. They get photos. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. I'll deal with that later. Right. Five years go by. But if you're ever, if you're ever so inspired, if you're sort of like, this is the week I'm going to take a look at the stuff that's on my computer and I'm going to organize it, as much information as you can tag to documents when you are looking at them, it really helps in the future. Because what breaks my heart as an archivist is the number of artists who are in our archive whose names are not known to us. So they're sitting there waiting for somebody to reclaim them. You know, their their mm-hmm. their legacies are protected but lost um they're 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 technically in the archive so the the physical thing is there and is being kept safe but we're not able to unlock the power of that photograph or that object because we don't know who the person is and why they were extraordinary Mm. yeah we don't want to lose our current generation of artists we want to celebrate all of them well you've certainly inspired me i have a week coming up and i'll be sifting through i have I've, I've basically almost every performance certainly every role i ever danced in my city valley i have on video so i will be now that i know the digital oh media <laughs> rots <laughs> oh, no, my dvd is gonna no i have to i have to shift over but um Yes. So thank you so much, Linda. This was so inspiring and fascinating. And we hope that everyone who's in the New York area, or if you visit New York, if you go here, you know, just to be a tourist, please make a stop at the Jerome Robbins Dance Division um, at the New York Public Library. It's really just one of the best places 
in the world. And if there's, <laughs> I love it so much. If there's anyone who's interested in supporting their work that you're doing, is that something that's possible? Oh, that's really sweet. Yes, it is always possible to support us. Um, they can just contact us at dance at nypl.org. And also that email is good if you are not in the New York area or if you are in the New York area, if you have a reference question, like if you have a, a dance trivia question that you cannot answer, um, we answer them for you. So we get we get reference questions all day long from all over the world. So people email dance at nypl.org with all their burden questions. I love that. This is such a fun bunhead podcast. We really appreciate you, <laughs> you very coming welcome. on and chatting with us. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Conversations on Dance is a part of the Acast Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepod.pod.com.